This week on Making Contact. Like in the past, domestic workers today are some of the most exploitable workers in the workforce. But the tide is turning. New York enacted the nation's first Domestic Worker Bill of Rights in 2010. And there's been a growing movement to win rights and respect long denied to domestic workers. It's important for, for all of us in the disability community to recognize that this is a long-term issue, that if we don't fight for good wages and good working conditions, we're keeping this job from being seen by society as a, as a profession. On this edition, we look at past and present struggles of domestic workers and what workers are doing to change the face of labor organizing in the U.S. I'm Kim Jin Lee, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. I was born 1911, Chickasaw County, Piedmont Plantation. And did you know as a girl growing up that one day you'd be a maid? Yes, ma'am, I did. Do you ever dream of being something else? While the Oscar-winning film, The Help, set in 1960s Mississippi, put domestic workers in the national spotlight. Workers have been fighting for living wages and basic protections in their workplace for more than a century. Today, we are not just here for a bill signing. Today, we are here for an historic action that will change the course of life for 200,000 hardworking New Yorkers. Now, On August 31, 2010, New York Governor David Patterson signed the nation's first law specifically protecting domestic workers, the people who cook, clean, and care for other people's children, disabled people, and the elderly. After six years of active campaigning, domestic workers in New York can now claim overtime pay, one day off per week, three paid days off per year, and safeguards against harassment and discrimination. New York's law brought added momentum to the movement. Domestic workers are now organizing in other states and localities to pass similar legislation. But their struggle isn't new. In fact, domestic workers have been fighting for more than 100 years to win respect, protections in the workplace, and wage increases. Jill Shanker is the field director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. The first thing that we know about in terms of U.S. history of domestic worker organizing was a washerwoman strike that took place in the late 1800s in Atlanta, Georgia. African-American women who worked as washerwomen formed an organization which they called the Washing Society, uh, and they organized a citywide strike that 3,000 uh, domestic workers participated in. That's Premila Addison, history professor at Queens College at the City University of New York. Organizers went door-to-door in Atlanta, recruiting other laundresses to join the ranks of the society. Members of the new organization met almost every night. Many of the strikers were arrested for disorderly conduct, but the movement brought widespread support and participation from the black community. The white establishment recognized the seriousness of the strike, as most of Atlanta relied on African-American manual labor for its laundry needs. While city officials tried to levy taxes and import steam laundries to break the strike, those women eventually prevailed in raising the rates uh, for their labor. Despite small victories like this, the constantly changing workforce made it difficult to organize as employers hired and fired at will, and workers moved from one household to another. 
During the Great Depression in the 1930s, African American women continued to work as cooks, maids, and laundresses for white families in the South. Dorothy Bolden labored for 30 years before founding the National Domestic Workers Union of America in Atlanta. In an oral history interview with the Georgia State University staff in 1995, Bolden recalls the kind of work she and her family did for local white families. My mother took in laundry. My daddy was a chauffeur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yard man, and he asked and he did a lot of everything, mm-hmm. cooking and everything else. So my mother went into cooking, too, with him. And the Jews stayed over there in summer here, so you could do the laundry. Mm-hmm. They liked for you to do the laundry for them. And not too much of a housework with laundry. You had more laundry than had anything else. So everybody in the house had somebody they was working for, you know. And we cheering to go get the laundry <laughs> in the <laughs> wagon. And we carried back in the wagon. Probably make a dollar and a half, a dollar, calling how much laundry and lending they had. With high poverty and unemployment rates, the 1930s were an active time for the labor movement and domestic workers organized across the country. Again, Pramila Nadison. One good example of that is a woman named Dora Jones, who was a domestic worker in Harlem, and she formed a group called the Domestic Workers Union in 1934, which uh, eventually had about 1,000 members, uh, and the Domestic Workers Union became uh, Local 149 of the Building Service Employees International Union. While the Great Depression brought immense hardships for most workers, the labor movement also won some important and lasting victories. A number of new laws were passed which provided workers with a safety net for the first time. Among these were the Social Security Act, which provides retirement benefits, the National Labor Relations Act, which sets the minimum wage, and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which gives workers a legal right to organize and bargain collectively. Unfortunately, domestic workers, as well as agricultural workers, were largely excluded from these labor laws. The primary reason had to do with the fact that these were uh, overwhelmingly African-American workers, and Southern congressmen were opposed to including African-Americans as as a part of the labor law. During the Depression, two-thirds of African-Americans and so-called other race workers were excluded from Social Security, whereas only 26 percent of white workers were excluded. Dorothy Bolden believed African Americans were purposely left out from these benefits. Welfare now was created for white. Mm-hmm. It wasn't created for us. Mm-hmm. I know that definitely. But the Social Security Administration denies the omission was based on race. In a report published in 2010, the administration asserts the idea to exclude these workers came not from racist Southern lawmakers but from the Roosevelt administration's desire to make the program easier to administer. These administrative exclusions continue to this day. Rosa Parks, who was also a domestic worker, helped spark the civil rights movement when she refused to give up her bus seat in 1955. Dorothy Bolden describes the conditions she and her colleagues endured during this time. It's been some hard days with us, women's riding the buses, trying to get to the houses to clean them up. If you bring a pain home sometime, you knock the pain out of your hand with food in it. And you stay there till 8 o'clock or 8.30, and then you 
be nine quarter to ten when you get home. So you, they tell you to take the food home with left and feed it to your chair, so you wouldn't have to cook. But sometimes you didn't have to, you didn't have any to take, because they'd have knocked it out of your hand. The civil rights movement helped embolden women to rekindle the fight for domestic workers' rights in the 1960s and 70s. Bolden started an organization called the National Domestic Workers Union of America. Other women also formed new organizations in cities across the country, including the Household Workers Organization and Household Technicians of America, which eventually amassed 25,000 members nationally. Premalyn Addison says organizations like Dorothy Bolden's helped raise wages and working conditions. They also sought job training and professionalization, and perhaps their most important victory was the passage of amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1974, which for the first time brought domestic workers minimum wage protection. Since the 1970s, the number of African-American women in domestic work has declined as barriers to employment in other sectors were removed by the civil rights movement. Immigrant women now make up more than 70% of the domestic labor force, according to the U.S. Census. As domestic workers continue to mobilize and gain legal rights, they have had to come up with new ways to accomplish their goals outside the traditional labor movement. Again, Pramila Addison. These are women workers who have been attempting to organize primarily on the community level. They have been organizing as part of a collective mass protest strategy, as a way to provide collective support to one another, partly because they have not had the legal right to form unions and to organize uh, and bargain collectively. Today, there's an estimated 2.5 million domestic workers nationally, almost 5% of whom are Filipino. A majority of them live in California and work as private caregivers to the elderly and the sick. Advocates say the large number of caregivers from this community is because many Filipinos had training in the medical profession before immigrating. But when they came to the U.S., they could not transfer their credentials. There's also been a push from the Philippines' government to emigrate. Just like house cleaners and nannies, caregivers have also been subject to abusive work conditions. But some caregivers have started organizing to demand the rights they've been denied. Making Contacts, Lisa Bartfi has more on this story. A note to our listeners, the names of the caregivers you'll hear from have been changed to protect them from possible retaliation. It may be hard to believe that there are people in the U.S. today who work up to 24-hour shifts for less than minimum wage, legally. But that's the reality for many of California's caregivers. Imelda is 79 years old. She's been working as a caregiver for the past three years to support her children in the Philippines. I usually work caring for the elderly. The last person that I worked with was 87. It was difficult to do this work because I was first hired as a caregiver, but then I was expected to do a lot more. And so I would cook, I would do laundry, I would clean the house, I'd even feed the dog. And there were three people living in that home, so I would care for her and her family members. Imelda says she was paid $40 a day and was expected to be on call 24 hours. When she asked for more compensation, her employer said no. 
I said $50 a day. They said, we can't do that because you don't have the right documentation. I'm actually an American citizen, though I don't have formal training like a CNA certificate. I felt very disrespected. I felt like I was treated like the lowest thing in the world, and it's the reason why all of us domestic workers really need more respect. Imelda's story is common among caregivers. Two-thirds of all household workers earn wages below the poverty line. This means they can't pay for basic things, such as rent and groceries, according to a study by Data Center. In recent years, a number of Filipino community organizations have started programs to support caregivers and other domestic workers. The Filipino Community Center in San Francisco is one of those organizations. It started when more and more of their clients complained of problems with their employers. The organization started filing wage claims against abusive employers. But Mario de Mira, an organizer at the Filipino Community Center, says they were only able to help a small number of workers. You know, we were seeing that we were helping people file claims and cases against employers, but at the end of the day, there would be hundreds more workers that, you know, needed these issues addressed, that were facing these conditions. And if we were just going to help them file cases, it really didn't address the systematic problems uh, within this industry. So I think that was one of the primary issues, was just like, how, are, how do we focus on really building workers' power and then also maybe later down the line, influencing policy to make it a better industry, a healthier industry. Because also, when you have healthier and happier workers, you're going to have healthier and happier patients. Flora is a caregiver and a client of the community center. She's a frail woman in her late 60s who loves to joke around. I love uh, taking care elders because I treat them as my father, mother, or grandfather. And they love me too. So that's why I love my work now as a caregiver. The most recent wave of Filipino migration started in the 1980s when the country suffered from an economic crisis and massive social unrest. In an attempt to calm the population and kickstart the economy, President Ferdinand Marcos started the Labor Export Program. Katie Joaquin is an organizer at Filipino Advocates for Justice. She describes the economic situation in the Philippines today. Because of the lack of land distribution, because of the lack of national industry, there's high joblessness, poverty, and then people are forced to leave. And they migrate at the rate of 3,800 per day. Um, if you can imagine, that's the size of most high schools. So it's as if you know, your entire high school population disappears one day, and it happens the next day, and the next day. It's a very abnormal situation. People will say that the number one export in the Philippines isn't pineapples, it's our people. As many as 11 million Filipinos live outside of the country as of 2010, according to the Philippine Overseas Employment Administration. The same agency also tracks how much money expatriates send back to their families. In 2010, they sent more than 18 billion U.S. dollars, 11 percent of the country's GDP. Half of that sum, 9 million U.S. dollars, comes from Filipinos working in America, and the vast majority of them are domestic workers a notoriously low-paying job. Mario, at the Filipino Community Center, describes why so many of his clients end up in this line of profession. They're seen as low-wage work that will come here and do this kind of work without any complaint. Because of the conditions in the Philippines, because of the lack of a strong economy, the lack of development, the lack of basically jobs at home, these workers are fleeing at record numbers. 
One of those 11 million Filipinos abroad is Roger. He came to the U.S. in 2007 to work as a welder for an American corporation. A placement company recruited Roger, but he had to pay $2,000 just to apply for the job. Even before his first day of work, he was $10,000 in debt. But soon after Roger arrived, the company declared bankruptcy. In a new country, without work, Roger took whatever jobs he could get to survive. I am not working for my skills, or let's say the skills that I was applied here for coming here. I work as a caregiver. Roger says while some employers treat him well, most don't. He says he's worked for 10 different facilities and has been misled with exaggerated benefits. Most of the facility, they said, before you start working or before you apply, they said they gave you orientation that it's free accommodation, it's free meals. Once you're there, you only found out that you're sleeping in the garage, you're sleeping at the couch, you don't have enough room. The food is not enough for us caregivers in a whole week. A coalition of organizations has come together to advocate for a California Bill of Rights. This law would provide a right to meal and rest breaks as well as overtime pay to workers who take care of children, elderly, and disabled people. The organizing around the Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers in the Filipino community has been going on since 2008. Many caregivers have learned about their rights in the process. They've taken it upon themselves to share that information with other caregivers. For Flora, advocating for the bill has become almost like a second job. I'm always active anytime, even if in the bus, when I happen to meet a fellow caregiver, I told them about that. There are only a few steps left before this bill could become law. It's already gotten through the Assembly and the Senate Labor Committee. But it still needs to pass the Senate floor before it gets to the governor's table. Organizers are confident that the bill will move forward in the next few months. And they believe Governor Brown, who supported excluded workers in the past, will sign it into law. But the current political climate in Sacramento is tough. And as the 2012 election approaches, lawmakers will be more cautious when it comes to signing a bill that could be costly. Even if the Bill of Rights for Domestic Workers passes, struggles remain for workers like Roger, Lola, and Imelda. But the organizing efforts around the bill have already empowered them and strengthened the Filipino caregiving community. For Making Contact, I'm Lisa Bartfei. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to Justice in the Home, Domestic Workers Redefine the Labor Movement. As in the past, today's help works mostly isolated in other people's homes. They have historically been left out of the labor movement, and many have seen them as unorganizable. And with all the challenges domestic workers face, 
they've had to look outside of the traditional way of organizing. On the way, they form some unlikely alliances. Making contacts, Megan Lasala brings us the story. Supporters of the California Bill of Rights say that the legislation would close some existing gaps in labor laws with protections like rest breaks and overtime pay. In January 2011, hundreds marched in Sacramento to advocate its passage. You're joined by hundreds of people throughout California here to win the AB 889 Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. The California bill is inspired by a similar law that passed in New York. Workers in other states, including Illinois and Maryland, are considering pushing for their own Bill of Rights laws. This momentum for workers' rights comes as the issue of home care is growing. As the baby boomer generation retires, 10,000 people turn 65 every day, and more women in the workforce are relying on nannies to care for their children. Workers want to ensure that this growing industry provides quality jobs, but some say these changes will make home care unaffordable. Sandy Levine owns a branch of Senior Helpers, an agency that provides in-home care in Alameda County, California. She argues that legally requiring things like overtime pay and rest breaks don't make sense for this industry. Domestic workers get rest as their clients get rest, and many of them, they're going to rest in the afternoon or have a break then. Nobody's going to come in and be able to relieve them and give them an actual break. That's not the situation. She points out that most people pay for care out of pocket, and she worries that the bill would make already expensive care unaffordable. She says her business already operates on a very tight profit margin. This is going to be a very difficult situation or almost impossible for seniors to be able to pick up the slack and the cost of what would happen in this industry if this passes. I really don't believe it's going to be expensive for folks. Jessica Lehman is a disability rights advocate and employs attendants in her home. She says that the bill shouldn't make care unaffordable. If somebody is used to having a 12-hour or 24-hour shift, they will need to split that shift up into less than eight-hour shifts. And I know firsthand that hiring new attendants and training new attendants can be difficult, but I also know firsthand that it's possible, and we all know it's possible. Jessica organizes with Hand in Hand, the Domestic Employers Association. Employer support played a key role in passing the New York Bill of Rights, so after that success, employers began to organize nationally with the belief that rights for workers are mutually beneficial for employers. It's important for, for all of us in the disability community to recognize that this is a long-term issue, that if we don't fight for good wages and good working conditions, we're keeping this job from being seen by society as a, as a profession. Workers and employers are advocating for workers' rights. They are also fighting to keep benefits like Medicare and Medicaid. Together, they hope to create a system that is more supportive of those who need care. Danielle Ferris is the director of Hand in Hand. People with disabilities, seniors, workers, immigrants, all need to be at one table, recognizing that we have overlap in our communities and that our lives are, are intertwined. With the success in New York, organizers are beginning to look beyond basic protections and state legislation to figure out how to re-envision a fair system on a national scale. How do you regulate work that happens in people's private homes? We really talk about the right to organize. And of course what that means in this country is collective bargaining and the right to form a union and have a contract. The best defense for working people from unscrupulous employers, corporate greed, is really unions. Ai-jen Poo is the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, 
a coalition of domestic worker organizations around the country. But the truth is, is that the framework for collective bargaining was rooted in a very different time in this country. So the National Labor Relations Act, which gives workers the right to collectively bargain and form a union in this country, came into being in the 1930s when the economy looked very different, the workforce looked very different, and the relationship between workers and employers was very different. One difference is that the laws were written for workers in a manufacturing economy, where employees bargained with a single employer. So, if domestic workers could collectively bargain, who would they bargain with? The people who employ domestic workers are also scattered and isolated. They may not even think of themselves as employers. In New York, workers have invited employers to help them figure that out. Thank you for coming. I, we have a, a bevy of information for you tonight. We are going to talk it's a Monday evening, and about a dozen young parents crowd into a room in Brooklyn. They're here for an info session on how to hire a nanny, organized by Park Slope Parents, a neighborhood parenting group. There's more on the agenda than how to find the right fit and how much to pay. Topics also include work agreements, severance packages, and whether to provide health insurance. Rachel McCullough works with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, or JFREDGE, one of the groups presenting at the meeting. JFREDGE organizes domestic employers in solidarity with the worker movement. As Rachel explains to the crowd, they see the Bill of Rights as just the beginning. So we wanted to talk to you guys about some organizing that we're doing these days around health care. So we were part of the campaign for the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, as Allison mentioned with Domestic Workers United, these days, we're looking at what it could mean to raise standards even higher, again, in a way that benefited workers and employers alike. So Park Slope parents and other local groups offer one potential model for organizing employers, which is a key puzzle piece in figuring out how collective bargaining might work. Sarah Sternod also works with Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. She brings up the issue of providing health insurance for employees. We recognize that not everyone in this room might even have their own health insurance. So what we're putting out there is a really big leap forward. But there are a couple of models out there that look like they might be feasible. And we want to start exploring how bits and pieces of those different models might be applicable to the Park Slope neighborhood and for people who want to try to be creative about being able to provide that really important benefit for their nanny or house cleaner. Organizers say they are at the early stages of experimentation, and they're trying to bring all of the stakeholders on board from the beginning. Priscilla Gonzalez is the director for Domestic Workers United, an organization that led the effort to pass the New York Bill of Rights. Now, they are working towards collective bargaining. So for example, working with synagogues and other congregations, working with parent groups to develop a shared understanding of what the employment relationship should look like so that when we go back to Albany, we can have some concrete recommendations for how collective bargaining will take place in this industry. Organizers see collective bargaining as an important step in creating a fair system for workers. Igen Poo says we should have better supports for childcare and elder care through measures like tax credits. She points to countries like France and Denmark that provide free childcare for working families. She acknowledges, though, that some of the changes domestic workers are proposing might seem unimaginable. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay people and we shouldn't offer them benefits. What that means is that there's something off balance in the system. We have to figure out how to fix it. For Making Contact, I'm Megan LaSala.
And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to the Southern Labor Archives at the Georgia State University Library. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Lisa Rudman is our executive director, Andrew Stelzer and George Lavender producers, Irene Flores web editor, Steph St. Clair development associate, Lisa Bartfi and Megan Lasala production interns, and Dan Turner, Barbara Barnett, Ron Rucker, Alton Bird, and Salima Hamarani volunteers. I'm Kyungjin Lee. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Surprise,